Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress against the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satarps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. If we've never met before, my name is Xavier. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, Elena has mentioned this, but if this is your first time, I just want to say welcome. If we have never met, I would love if you'd be willing to say hi to me after service. I'd appreciate that a ton. I'd love just to hear a little bit about you and your story. So we're about to jump into this. I just want to take a moment to pray together, just to ask God if he would step in in this time to lead us and to love us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we get to gather together weekly with other believers to worship your name that you use your word to shape us and to lead us and to transform us. Would you do the same today? 
Let's pray that you would use this story of Esther to lead us to set our eyes more on you, Jesus. Let's pray this in your name. We love you and we thank you. Amen. So it was 2018. I'm driving home from work, and my wife and I at the time had an apartment that was 30 minutes away from the church that I worked at. Um, it was a good drive for me. I was able to listen to books or to listen to songs uh, like Usher Confessions. <laughs> so uh, it, it was a good time going home each day, just 30 minutes. I'm about five minutes away from home, and um, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to. I drive the speed limit, which Josh always makes fun of me for, but I'm doing all the right things. I'm a defensive driver. I'm making sure that I'm aware of all my surroundings. And when I'm driving, I'm going west on Greenway, and my, my lane is completely open, but the two lanes next to me are completely packed. I wanted to test out my artistic skills, so I drew a picture of it for you. So this is what it looked like. Um, I'm the car with the... Yeah, you see. I'm going west. Okay, so... There's two lanes packed, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but ahead of me, they've made a gap for somebody to come and turn left. So I don't know if you do that. I'm not going to make any comments, but they make this uh, opening for him, and I can't see that at all. I'm too far away from this. So now you can take that picture down. It's too embarrassing. So when I'm driving, that truck sees me but thinks that I'm going to stop as well, but I don't see him. He turns left and realizes I'm still coming. And I don't know if it was reaction or what, but he hit his brake and stopped in front of me. So I hit my brake as hard as I can and my brakes lock. And there was like two seconds there where they felt like five minutes. I, I saw what was happening right in front of me. I'm about to get in this car accident. And then in a matter of a second, boom, my car was crumbled, totaled. One second before, this was my favorite car, 2007 Honda Civic, loved it. Next second, it's no longer functional. And it just happens like that. Like it was one of those moments in my life where, you, where I realized, oh man, I'm, I'm not as in control as I think I am. Like I'm doing all the right things here. And still, this person comes in front of me and boom, I'm in a car accident. I think that, and I say this example because I think that there are moments in all of our lives when the unexpected hits. Like for me, I drove that route every single day, and I never expected that to happen. For us, there's moments when we realize we are not as in control as we think we are. When life goes differently than we wanted or we desired or we dreamed or we planned for. When we make a decision that we wish we can take back. When we get news that shakes up our reality. There are moments in our life when uncertainties come out of nowhere. There are moments when the future feels open and unknown. I think it's in these moments though that we learn to trust not in ourselves, but to trust in an unchanging God. As we look in this text today, the big idea for today is this. As believers, we can have confidence in the middle of life's uncertainties. When the unexpected or the undesired or the unwanted hits, we can still have confidence 
because of our trust and dependence on an unchanging God. As we look at the narrative, what we're going to see is a bunch of characters seeking for control when in reality there's an unnamed character behind the scenes of the whole book of Esther who actually has ultimate authority. As we see that, we are able to glean some knowledge from this story to know how to live in confidence when our lives feel like they're out of our hands and out of our control. So let's go into the text and see what it is that God wants to teach us through this. So as the narrative goes on, chapter 3 is the beginning of the plot. You can uh, look back at the old sermon, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Esther. But chapter 1 and 2 set up the characters of the story. And what we learn from those chapters is all the characters are messed up. There's no one to specifically root for. There's no hero, no villain. It's a narrative in its truest form. It's just a story being written and being told. But behind the scenes, we see God's hand working. As we go into chapter 3, one thing we have to recognize is that this is actually five years after chapter 2. So chapter 1 started, and then chapter 2 was four years after. In chapter 2, there was a whole year that passed while Esther was preparing, and now this is five years after, which means Esther has now been queen for five years. This is 10 years after chapter 1 when Vashti got kicked out. Now, this is what happens in the story we just read. There's a new character introduced. His name is Haman. He gets promoted to the number two spot in the kingdom, but he's angry when Mordecai doesn't bow down and plots to kill him and all the Jewish people. He then works with the king to get an edict out, and, plan, and the plan is set for 11 months for the Jews to be killed. The chapter ends with him and the king drinking together and the city in confusion. So when I see this story, it seems that everyone is grasping for control and all for different reasons. Let me just point out each character and how this is happening we first see Mordecai. He doesn't bow down to Haman. Now, I think that our natural response to that is, well, Mordecai is trying to be a good Jewish man. That's the reason he didn't bow down. The problem is, from chapter 2, we realize Mordecai isn't a good Jewish man. He's compromised, he's assimilated, he uses a name that's from a false god. He didn't go back to Jerusalem with all of the other Jewish people, and he's here. He looks more like a Persian than like a Jewish man. The second thing is, it actually wasn't against the Jewish law for them to bow down to leadership. That was just a sign of respect. So whatever he's doing here isn't because he's Jewish. It's way more personal than that. Now, if we look back at chapter 2, this is what we know. Mordecai saved the king's life in chapter 2, and he didn't get what he deserved. In the Persian world, he should have gotten honor or a position or some type of recognition or been promoted in some way. And the other thing is Haman's ancestors, the person he's not bowing down to, is Mordecai's ancestors' enemies. So at least this is my take. This isn't what the word is saying specifically. We all kind of have to say, all right, what is it that Mordecai is doing? I think Mordecai is just being stubborn. Like it seems like he wants what's his and wants to remind everyone, um, remember me? I'm the one who saved the king's life. I don't understand why this guy's walking around getting promoted. I should have got the promotion. 
Mordecai has an incentive, and no matter what it is exactly, it's personal. He, he wants justice for himself. So the question is, will his stubbornness get him what he wants? The answer seems to be no. The stubbornness is going to kill him. Like he's about to be in danger because of Haman. The second person we see is Haman. Haman is prideful and he's powerful. He wants respect. He wants honor. He wants obedience from others. And you just have to think about this. This guy just got the promotion of a lifetime. He's number two in the kingdom. And one guy doesn't bow down and it eats away at him. So Haman goes, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm taking this in my own hand. And he plans this evil mass genocide. Like a good point just to know here is oppression and injustice often comes on the other side of mass power and insecurity. Haman is the example of that. Haman is insecure. He wants respect. And he thinks maybe me proving this by killing the Jews will earn that. And we find out later his pride ends up killing him. The last person we see is King Xerxes. King Xerxes is a little more interesting of a case. But King Xerxes seems to be driven by the desire for comfort, pleasure, riches, and safety. He just wants more of what he already has. He doesn't think too hard on decisions. He goes with them if they provide more of these things. So chapter one, hey, if you don't get Vashti out of here, it's going to be uncomfortable for you and all the men. So he kicks Vashti out. Chapter two, hey, if you would have sleep with all the best looking virgins around, we can make that happen for you. And Bachelor season one starts. <laughs> and then chapter three, uh, if, you, if I get rid of these Jewish people, I'm going to help increase your profit. And he goes, where do I sign? Like King Xerxes is easily manipulated, but he always thinks he's making the moves for more power, more sex, more money, more pleasure. So will this work out for him? Will more of the same things give him satisfaction? It seems like the answer is no to that. I bring these up because as we read this story, there should be a question that comes to mind for us. How many of us are seeking control of our own lives? are seeking to be the ones with the steering wheel, making all the right decisions so that our plan comes to pass. One of the ways I think about it is this. Uh, one of the trends online, I don't know, if, I think everything's a trend now, but one of the trends online is people talking about how in control they are of their own life. They don't say it that way, but they're like, look at how much money I make. If you do the same thing that I do, you're going to get rich too. And the one thing that I see a lot are people that show me their daily routines or their morning routines. And they're like, man, look how much I get done in two hours. You should be ashamed of yourself because I'm really in control of my own life. I'm not against morning routines. I think they're good. I just think that people can try to show you how successful they are and how in control of their own life they are. So I just want to show you one example. This is one example of a morning routine that I've seen. 
my destiny is formed before 9 a.m. So I'm up at 4 a.m. From 4 to 4.20, I do a book on double speed. So I'm listening. At 4.20, I'm on the treadmill with my wife and we're doing an active meditation together for 40 minutes. It includes a reverie where we're basically aligning the pharmacy of the body to over dopamine the mind by gratitude, serotonin in the brain. And then we shift into Mind Palace, which is 20 minutes of co-creating our best bodies. Five o'clock, we then hit the weights. That happens between five and seven. And then between seven and eight, that's my time with my wife. Between eight and nine is an hour with our kids after we shower and get ready where we're doing breakfast and life lessons. And by 9 a.m., the day technically hasn't started yet, but everything that was important to me is done. What time do you go to bed? Monday through Friday, I'm good with four or five hours of sleep. So often it's 11 or midnight. <laughs> Saturday, I sleep in generally till like 5.30 or 6. And Sunday, I'll sleep until 9 or 10. And then Monday, I'm refreshed and my body's good to go. My death. So if you want to know why your life isn't going well, it's... No, I'm like, you're doing that every day? Your kids never come up and like, hey, mom, hey, we are currently co-creating our best bodies. I just... So... Now, I do just want to say this. I do think that some of us do need encouragement to grow in discipline and intentional planning. That's not this message. That message will come soon. But I, I just think we live in a really interesting time. We are convinced if we do all the right things, oh man, my life is going well. I just need to do more and more. I need to plan better, be more disciplined, be more. One commentator says it so well, Karen Job. She says this, many of us like to think that through thoughtful planning and wise living, we can successfully direct the course of our lives. Like, some of us believe more in the American dream than the good news of Jesus. Like, we're driving ourselves more on how do I become a successful person than how do I follow the way of my Lord. And much of our sense of control is just an illusion, just like my car accident. Typically, it takes a moment to shock us out of that and open our eyes to the fact that we are not the author of our own lives. We could be like Mordecai and through grit and stubbornness try to gain what's due to us. We could be like Haman and use our power to get our own way. We could be like Xerxes and be passive and use pleasure and riches to make us feel like we are in control. But many of us just have these habits in our life that are convincing us that we are the authors of our own lives. Let me be more specific for us. We can grind ourselves to the bone at work to try to write our own story of success. We can use our bank accounts, our money, our possessions to give ourselves a sense of security. We can yell and use our anger to let others know they do not have power over us. We can use sex, alcohol, porn, drugs to numb ourselves from our current reality. We can become apathetic so no one can hurt us. We can push people away so that they don't have the chance to do it first to us. We can spend endless hours on our phones or watching content so we never have to just sit and feel. Obviously, this list isn't exhaustive. There's more than just this. The point is, we often try to gain control of our own lives. We often feel more safe when we feel like we're in control. Now, I really do think that some of us in this room, currently, we have a lot of 
contentment in our life because things are going our way. It's worked so far. Everything has gone and been going the way that we've desired and planned for. But many of us in this room are actually on the other side of that. Many of us have had experiences or are in the middle of an experience right now that's impacting us negatively and is completely out of our control. I think about the ending of this chapter, verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree, this is the one calling the killing of all the Jewish people, was issued to Susa the citadel. And I want you to hear this. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Like, I think the goal in many of our minds is to be like the king and Haman. Sitting somewhere with our favorite wine, with a lot of money in the bank, with work going well, beautiful woman or good man at home, completely obedient kids, no family tension. All of life is all good. The problem is most of us have an area in our life right now that feels more like the city of Susa. Confusing, out of our control, looking like it's not going to turn out well for us or someone in the story. Now, the very honest Xavier would tell you, this is one of those areas that Jesus is constantly discipling me in. Like I, I really want things to go the way that I, I plan them to. I try to take a lot of steps to make sure that they go in that right direction. Jesus is doing that in some serious ways in my life and some just, I don't know, he's exposing some silly stuff. Um, one of those is, is this. I, I remember uh, 2020, so this is two years after that car accident. I'm, I'm not lying about this. I, on and I prayed, and someone gifted us a truck. It was very sweet, um, but it was a very nice truck. Thank God I don't have that truck anymore. I think it's good for my soul. But um, for some reason, my mind wants to be perfect about certain things. That truck was on that list. Some people in this room know about that. I had all these rules with that truck. You can't eat in the truck. You can't drink in the truck. I can't bring anything except my backpack into the truck. I park at least three spaces away from everyone in the truck. Like there's, there's somebody in this room, they'd laugh. But they came into my truck once with a coffee and both of us looked at each other like, ah! And so <laughs> so uh, one day, Annalisa and I went to go get uh, a COVID test. This was back when they had the long things that they shoved up into your brain. You remember those times? So it was my first time. And I was very nervous. So we're sitting there. We're waiting in the parking lot. And there's car after car after car after car. I have to wait there next to all these cars in my truck. So the windows are down. We're waiting for our time. And all I hear is boom. And I'm like, I see in the rearview mirror this door just on my truck. Close it. I'm like, oh, gosh. So I get out. First thing I see is, you know, did they go to the church I passed for? So then I... I get out of the car, I look at the dent, I'm not, this is a true story, they go, they have their window down, they go, what are you doing? I go, wait, what do you mean? They're like, I didn't hit your car. I go, I didn't say anything. Obviously, someone's defensive here. So, I, I just said, hey, look, um, I know it was an accident, but I'm going to want to fix this. Can I just get your number? Got their number. 
Went home and the dent was like in this really unique place where honestly, like insurance wasn't gonna do anything about it. What was I gonna do? Tell her to Venmo me the 50 bucks? Like I, so I just said, ah oh, man, this is out of my control. And none of you would have seen the dent, but every day I went to my truck and it was a daily reminder. I'm not in control of things. Like even when I do all the right stuff, trying to protect myself and my life and my possessions, and my, I'm still not in control of those things. I think it's hard for us when something happens to us that we feel like is out of our own hands. What's harder is when we feel like we take all the right steps and still things don't go our way. Especially when it feels like I can't do anything to fix this. The truck is a silly example, but there's some serious examples in this room. Some of us in this room have financial issues that we feel like, how am I going to get out of this one? Some of us have marital tension. You're asking yourself, did I marry the right person? Some of us have family tension. Why is my son or my daughter suffering the way they are? Why are they making the decisions that they're making? Why are my parents or my siblings treating me this way? Some of us have frustrations at work. Why is that person making more than me? Why did they get promoted and not me? Why can I never catch up? Some of us have health issues and questions. Why am I sick again? Why can I still not get pregnant? Why am I still depressed and anxious? Like if we were all honest with each other, there's real pain in this room that feels completely out of our hands. There's real confusion in this room with situations that we have no idea how they're going to be solved. There's real fear in this room for what might be coming in a specific situation. There is real experience right now in this room that is out of our control. If you're in this room and you are feeling one of those things, the first thing I want you to know before we go back to the text is that you're not alone. Sometimes we can come to church, we can think to ourselves, man, everyone has it together in here. That, they're worshiping so hard and that person knows their Bible and just want to be clear, the reason we're here is because we don't have it together. <laughs> like, some of us might feel like we do now, just wait like a few months. Like we're all just like going through seasons <laughs> in our life. But that's the beauty of the church. We get to gather together and confess, I need Jesus, you need Jesus. Okay, we're, we're in this together. Now when we look back to the text, it seems that God actually has some good news for us in this passage. It might not be exactly what you expect, but God does have good news for us when it comes to this passage. For all of us in this room that have an area in our life that doesn't feel like it's in our hands, I just want to show you where God has some promises to keep. So it says that, or this is what I want to point out. Um, as we look into this story, there's a, something that we have to know. The narrative when they're writing this expects us to actually know a lot about the Old Testament. So the best comparison I can think of is when movies have Easter eggs. An Easter egg in a movie is like they have like a little reference and it makes you go like, oh, whoa. That's from a different movie. Like, I'm so excited. Like, Iron Man 1, there's a little Captain America shield. Like, oh my gosh, are they going to make a Captain America movie? And then a few years go by, you're like, oh, I knew it. 
Iron Man 1, Easter egg, like this, like Star Wars. They're like, reach out to 5373. Oh my gosh. 5373 is the same number that Han Solo used. For, like people just really get into it. So that's, that's what an Easter egg is. Okay. There's some Easter eggs in this story that I want to point out. Verses 12 through 14. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps. I don't know if I pronounced that right. And to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Here's the Easter egg. When Haman cast lots earlier in the story. So that's him like, he's like rolling dice for a higher spiritual authority to give him wisdom on what decision to make. When he does that, he does it in the first month. When they send out the decree, they do it on the 13th day of that same month. Every Jewish person would have read this and the Easter egg would have rang in their ears. That is the day, the eve of Passover. If you don't know what Passover is, that's totally okay. Long story short, Passover is a celebration where Jewish people would look back. The Jewish people that were in slavery to Egyptians were saved by God. They all put blood of a lamb on their doors and the spirit that went to go kill every firstborn passed over them and through that they were led to freedom. Each year they celebrate Passover, which celebrates the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. So everyone would have read this and they would have had a question in their mind. Will God do it again? Will God free his people and keep his promises? Will he free his people that have no control of this situation? And the end of the story actually shows us God does free his people. But this moment teaches us a few things that could give us hope in the parts of our life that seem out of our hands. The first one is this. God keeps his promises even when we break ours. This is one of the main lessons that we can learn from this. We sin, we fail, we turn our back, we don't love God the way we're supposed to, we make bad decisions. Some of the things in our life feel out of control because of the decisions we've made. We do not keep our promises to God. This is the same story for all of the Israelites. The reason they were in this situation was because they didn't keep their promises to God. Yet, God still kept his promises to them. Now, what's key here is for us to know what are God's promises to you and to me. If you've given your life to Jesus, God's promises are salvation and new life, complete freedom from sin. We can be confident to know God has forgiven my past sin, my present sin, and even my future sin. The next thing that God promises is a never-ending presence and the Holy Spirit. No matter our situation, we can have comfort to know God is with us. That actually steps into the pain with you and with me. And the last thing he promises is that he will restore all things. 
that there is a hope that there will be an eternity that is different than our current reality. If you've not given your life to Jesus, God makes a promise to you too that you can have all these same things through Christ if you would be willing to give your life to him. Even when we break our promises, God keeps his. But we have to remember his promises. He doesn't promise the American dream. He doesn't promise career success. He doesn't promise a life with no tension or pain or hurt, but he does promise his presence with you, that he will be present with you through each moment, even the moments that feel out of our control. The second one is this, God is completely in control. Karen Job says it best, so I just want to use her words. She says this, God works mysteriously, patiently, inexorably through a series of coincidental events and human decisions, even those based on questionable motives and evil intents. All of the chance events in life are really working toward the end that God has ordained. Like, think about the story. Mordecai's decision to not bow down literally cost the life of all the Jewish people, and God still used that to save the Jewish people. Like, often we can look back at our lives and think endlessly, man, I should have done that differently. I should have made this decision. Gosh, I regret that sin so much. I wish I did that or this. Or... But instead of that, of wishing a different life, we can trust God's hand, that he is completely in control and he's using our good decisions and our bad ones as well. And this goes to the last point is this. If God is in control then we don't have to be. I want to be clear on what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we should be passive. I'm not saying that God's in control so our decisions don't matter. I think that when we talk about this, we can end up there, but our decisions matter deeply. We have a real responsibility for our possessions or relationships, finances, work, and so on. Like an example is right now. It is my responsibility or Josh's responsibility to take the time to pray and to study and to practice and to develop a message to teach accurately, biblically, accurately, theologically, something to the church that will actually shape us. And at the same exact time, I'm just going to give you a little uh, in-look into my life. When I go home, I'm going to take a nap. Because... I think that this moment is my responsibility. I think that the transformation of people's hearts is not in my hands, but in the hands of God. My nap is a physical reminder. God's in control. When I'm passed out with my drooling everywhere and stuff, like <laughs> God is still in control of the lives of the people in our church. I say that because I just don't want us to go and live passive lives. Well, I don't have to work hard at work, and I'm not going to take out the trash. God's in control. It's like, no, we still step in seriously into the moments and responsibilities of our life, but we go in, we work hard, and we know at the end of the day, okay, this is in God's hands. The big thing that I want to communicate is this. We cannot see the end of things from the middle, but God can. So here's just a few things we can know if God's in control. If God's in control, we can be human. We can know we're not going to do everything right, but God still will use it all. If God's in control, then we can have real feelings. Instead of thinking we have to have it all together, 
as Christians, we could be the ones that don't have it all together. We can be legitimately sad and hurt, confused, and still trust God knows the end. If God's in control, then we don't need to have all the answers. It's okay to say, I don't know. If God's in control, we can have real humility. We can be the most humble people. We can have nothing to prove and no one to impress because we are not the center of the world. If God's in control, we can have real honesty. We can take God seriously, but not ourselves, and we can be honest with the people around us. And if God's in control, we can have a real hope. When our hope is in our own hands, it will always fail. But when our hope is in the hands of God, it will never crumble. Here is his good news for you and me. Life is going to get and be messy and weird and not perfect, but we have a perfect God that we can depend on. So we don't need to grasp for control, but we can submit to the God who is in control and remember that God keeps his promises even when we break ours. That God is completely in control and because of that, we don't have to be. We can have confidence in the middle of life's uncertainties. So let me just close with this one practice that we can do in our lives. One simple thing that we can do to remind ourselves of this truth is to set apart intentional time of silence and prayer. Now, I, I say this mostly because I think that prayer often is a good thought in our mind, but sometimes it's hard to actually go and do. My one challenge for you is very simple. That before the end of today, to set an alarm for some time tomorrow, to spend just five minutes of your day just in silence and prayer with God. Silence is a physical reminder that when I'm not doing anything, God is still running the universe. And prayer as a reminder of the things that are not in control in our hands, God is still in control of. With that being said, let me just pray right now for us as we go back into our time of worship together. As I pray, if there's anything in your mind right now that you do feel like is just out of your hands, out of your control, would you just bring that to the forefront of your mind? God, I think about how many things in our life, big or small, are out of our hands. And it makes us uncomfortable, it's confusing, it's hard. My prayer is that through it, you would teach us. You would teach us a new form of dependence on you. You would teach us how to find comfort in your presence with us. You would teach us how to follow you well, Jesus, and that you would build a hope inside of us of a future life, of eternity with you, in a new creation, in a new life, in a new world. God, we love you so much. Amen.